The reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thanks, Ben. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, or your application, whatever it might be. Uh, If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back by the giving boxes, and those are um, are complimentary. We invite you to use those and also take them home if you you need a Bible. Um, So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. I am also going to be reading from some other passages this morning, uh, and we'll have those passages on the screen So you don't need to worry about necessarily finding that. You can just root yourself in Acts chapter 4 this morning. We're we're kind of in a little mini-series in the larger series that we're doing for 10 months in the book of Acts. We're in the second week of what we call the incident at the temple. We looked at at chapter 3 last week, uh, the healing of this lame man who had been lame since birth for 40 years. Uh, And this week we... Uh, we get to look at what happens as a result of that. So to bring you up to date, first of all, if you weren't here last week and you want to know what happened last week, you can look at the uh, look at. You can listen to the podcast. It would probably be more helpful to listen to it. It's on our website. But here's what happened: uh, Peter and John, last last chapter, were on their way into the temple in the afternoon for the hour of prayer, and they run into a beggar, this lame man who was laying there, had to be carried there. He's been coming every day to the temple to beg alms. Alms is a gift of charity in the form of money or food. Uh, and he's there pretty much every day, people bringing him and taking him home. And uh, Peter and John walked up and they said, uh, look at us. They engage him. They don't just walk by. They don't ignore him. And they also don't just walk by and, and slip him a little something, but also still averting their eyes. So they're not checking their good deed box. Instead, they walk up and they engage this man. They say, look at us, because uh, beggars then would, would have their heads down and their hand up like that. And so they said, look at us. This is very strange, very, very unusual. And, and Peter says to the beggar, he says, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but what I do have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And then Peter helped him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And he started walking, and he started leaping and praising God. And the interpretation there is that he was even dancing. And this is just an amazing miracle. And the people around the temple had seen this guy for years and years and years, and now they know that he's leaping and dancing and praising God and walking around. So naturally, they're curious. They're not shrugging their shoulders and walking off. They're curious as to what has happened. And so... Peter addresses them, and Peter um, makes the case. He says, it's really interesting. He says, first of all, you really shouldn't be amazed by this because you are, after all, the people of God, okay? So this shouldn't necessarily amaze you that God would do this. But here's the other thing he's saying. He said, don't look at us as if we did this. This is God who did this. He immediately deflects any credit and points to God in the midst of this. So he proclaims the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that in him there is forgiveness and redemption. He he proclaims the power of Jesus Christ, and he proclaims the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. And of course, that becomes the nexus or the catalyst of what gets them into a little bit of trouble. He also, in the midst of it, we talked about this, he seems a little bit accusatory as well. He keeps bringing up the fact that the audience that he's speaking to, you crucified Jesus. He keeps mentioning that. Now, it sounds accusatory, and it probably is, but really what he's doing is he's just reciting the facts of the case. He's not necessarily trying to incite them, but he is trying to point out that you're the ones that killed God, and you're the ones that killed the very one who is, who is healing now, and who is alive, still alive. He's raised from the... God, you killed him. God raised him. Um, and, and, and you killed the one who's responsible for all of these good things that are happening. And at the end of it, he calls for people to come to Jesus and repent. Well, the ruling council in Jerusalem, what I like to call the professional religious people or the perps, they hear this and they sort of see what's going on. And verses 1 through 22 of Acts chapter 4 is what happens next. So this is part 2. Uh, ben only read the first four to kind of first four verses to kind of get us into the story. But we're going to look at all 22 verses. And then next week we look at the final installment of this little mini-series, part 3. And what we find out in these 22 verses is this officially starts the localized Jerusalem nastiness against the Christian sect, the Christian church. And if, you've ever, if this is the first time you're reading Acts, this actually might come as a surprise to you. Because you're reading along and you're, and you're I'm, I'm thinking that you're thinking that they just healed this guy who couldn't walk for 40 years. That's a good thing. Why are they in trouble for this? Why isn't everybody celebrating? Well, if you know the Gospel of John in chapter 11, when Jesus comes and raises Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days. When Jesus raises Lazarus, Lazarus, there were many who did celebrate and believed in Jesus. But in verse 46 of chapter 11, it also says, and many went away and plotted how they might be able to kill Jesus. These healings, these miracles are not always good news to every. In fact, they're rarely good news to everybody. They're good news to some people. And so there's opposition. And this opposition to the Christians in Jerusalem starts with this bogus little trial or hearing of Peter and John in chapter 4. And here's the big idea. We are called to listen to God and bear witness to his son. Very simple. We are called to listen to God and bear witness to, son and to his son. And I want you to notice something. This is really important. Um, the way this, this big idea is, in, is constructed. Essentially, we are called to see what God is doing first, he's the initiator, and then we respond. We just, we, in the church, so often, which is, is it, it causes tension, so often we decide what we need to do, and then we go to God and we say, get with the agenda, God, and we want God to respond to us. But really, the proper way to do this is to see where God is working, because God is always working. If you don't see that he's working, I would suggest that we're not looking hard enough. And he's working, and he's working in a lot of places. And maybe he's not working in the most convenient place for you, but he is working. Look at where God is working and then respond to him. That's when the greatest work happens. 
That's when the greatest work takes place. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be trouble, and there aren't going to be challenges, and there might not even be, uh, there's going to be suffering in the midst of that, because Peter and John certainly are challenged, and they're in trouble, and they suffer. That doesn't mean that, but look at everything that does happen, because it's being done by God, not by some human agenda. So what we'll do is we'll go through the 22 verses, and uh, kind of a flyover, and discuss it a little bit, and then hopefully we'll get to three challenging takeaways for us at the end of of uh, this message. So again, let me reread the first four verses. As they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. This is the ruling council of Jerusalem. There's 72 of them. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus The resurrection from the dead. You notice every time Peter gets up, he can't help himself. He says, Jesus has been raised. God raised him. He is alive right now. And they're annoyed by this. And we'll talk a little bit about why that's particularly annoying. And they arrested them. They arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men uh, in the Christian community came to be about... 5,000. So let's look at who the players are for this chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. There's Peter and John. They had been with Jesus, the text will tell us. They had been with Jesus, and they are now the key leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And they are very different men from the men that they were in the Gospels. If you look at Peter and John in the Gospels, especially Peter, and look at them now, they're very different. The resurrection changes people. It can't but change people. And and we'll find out in the next paragraph that the chief priest was there, Annas, and he was there along with the rest of the high priestly family. And they mention a few of those names, but essentially it's the people who, who are still alive who had been the high priests and the people who supposedly will eventually become the high priests. So the entire high priestly family is there. There are also many other what you might call lower priests who help make up this large religious council there. There's the temple captain. He's actually the number two behind the chief priest. He's like the executive pastor, okay? He's the operations manager of the temple. And then the Sadducees are mentioned. Certainly there are some Pharisees in there, and they're the largest religious sect, but they mentioned, the, the, Luke specifically mentions the, the Sadducees, and the reason is because the Sadducees are the true nexus of power on this council. They are the true power on the council. And they're an interesting group, and it's interesting to study why they would have all the power, because they're actually the smallest group. Of all the religious professionals, from everything I've read, uh, as I understand it, you'd say that 90% were Pharisees and only 10% were Sadducees. But the Sadducees had the power. And the Sadducees had a different theology than most everybody else. Number one, they only accepted the Pentateuch as real scripture. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. That's, all, they said, that's where scripture is. None of these prophets in history, that's not real scripture. Only the Mosaic law, the Pentateuch. They also denied the resurrection in, in theory, in reality, in application. They denied any form of resurrection. Now, the, the Jews' uh, theology of resurrection hadn't been 
uh, specifically and narrowly defined at this point, but the vast majority of Jews did believe in some sort of resurrection that might eventually happen at some point. Certainly the Pharisees did, but the Sadducees denied the resurrection. If you've ever been to Bible camp, you know that we teach the children that the Sadducees denied the resurrection, and so they were sad, you see. Yeah, see, you've been, yeah, okay, so that's how you remember who they are. Well, this is problematic because every time Peter gets up to speak, he's just pounding on the resurrection. So the Sadducees are getting a little bit miffed. Uh, like I said, they're few in numbers, but here's where the power is. They're rich. They are rich. They have a lot of money. And that money, actually, remember, Jerusalem, uh, Judea was an occupied nation at that time. They were occupied by the Romans. The Sadducees' money put them in league with the Roman government. And so they don't want any trouble with the Romans because if the Romans get upset, it might start to challenge the Sadducees' position of privilege and power. And, and, and like I said, there's others on the council, including any Pharisees, believed in the resurrection, but they also were, were okay with the Sadducees being upset about this because the way Peter was preaching about the resurrection, if any Roman soldier or Roman administrator or governor heard Peter preaching about the resurrection, it would very easily, could very easily be interpreted as an uprising of a new king that is going to challenge Caesar. So now they could see that as sedition or rebellion. And so the whole council wants to, here you go, <clears throat> they do not want to invite the scrutiny of the Roman government. Can I get an amen on that, okay? So you understand why this is happening now. All right? they, don't, they don't want any scrutiny from the Rome. They just want to be able to be free to do whatever it is that they're doing. So again, this is threatening the power of the entire religious council. So now you can see where this is going and why. And it says they were greatly annoyed. Literally, that, that little verb there means distressed with piercing fatigue. Distressed. They're tired already of hearing about Jesus. They're, they're already tired of this movement. They're done with it, okay? Um, Daryl Bach, who's an Acts scholar, he brought this up, not me, but I like it. One of the reasons I like it is because he references a different movie than The Godfather, and I want you to prove that I know about more movies than just The Godfather, okay? But, but he says, what they're, they're sitting there going, why won't Jesus just go away? And here's their confusion. We gamed this whole thing with Jesus. We were the ones that went and, and had this fake trial against Jesus and got him executed. We're the ones that caused all of that to happen. He's dead. Why, why won't he go away? Here you go. Bach says that they're kind of like Commodus in Gladiator. Anybody see Gladiator? We have a picture of him in case. Yeah. Do, do you remember in Gladiator, like the third time that Commodus goes down to talk to Maximus in, in the arena? And he's frustrated, and he looks at Maximus, and he says, why won't you just die? Well, that's exactly what's happening here. They're, why won't this Jesus thing just die? Well, the reason is because he's alive. And he's coming again, by the way, unlike Maximus, who does actually finally go away. But Jesus is coming again. And, and what's the catalyst? The catalyst is, you killed him, but he lives. So this happens in the afternoon, so the council only meets in the morning. 
So they had to pull him in and put him in jail overnight. They weren't going to arrange a special hearing just to be able to get them home at night. And yet we're also told that in the midst of this, many more believed. And the count's now 5,000 men, which means there's probably more than 10,000 actually uh, actual believers. This is now a mega church in uh, Jerusalem. And something else that I think, I just want to mention this before we move on, which I think helps bring out the raw humanity in this story, is that we need to understand that for decades, for decades, these men who are now arresting Peter and John and are um, pushing against them in opposition and threatening them, and these men who are responsible for killing their rabbi, for executing their rabbi, Jesus, these were men that for decades Peter and John looked up to and revered. So think about that tension there as well. So this is very hard, very tough, and yet Peter and John are very bold in the midst of this. And I want you to notice as we go through this story something else. The professional religious people never disagreed that they killed Jesus. They never protest their innocence. They also don't ever protest that what is happening in Jerusalem, the miracles, and what Jesus is doing, they never deny that any of this is happening either. Just think about the psychology of that and how interesting that is. So now we get to the hearing, verses 5 through 12. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And, then they set, they had, <clears throat> and when they had set them in the midst, Peter and John, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a, uh, a bit of bold and succinct rhetoric by Peter. Verse 7, by what power, by what name do you do that? That is supposed to be a shutdown question right there. Literally, they're saying to Peter, who do you think you are? We're, we're the council. If I recall correctly, you flunked out of Hebrew school at six. You're a fisherman. Who do you think you are? We have all the power. The supposition is that there's no power higher than the ruling council in Jerusalem. And they expected, after they asked that question, I'm guessing, that, that Peter would say, oh, sorry. We're sorry. But he doesn't. He preaches to them boldly. And I think there's three things, again, key things that we see in these verses. You've heard them already before in other texts, but we'll hit them again. Number one, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. How many times do all of us need to see this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit before we start to recognize, yeah, the Holy Spirit's kind of important. 
I'm preaching to myself here, y'all. Okay? This isn't clever humanistic rhetoric or whimsical philosophy that Peter's giving him. This is God. Let me read uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 to you. I, I teach communication and public speaking at Fuller Seminary. And it's interesting that I would go into a seminary with students who are supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be able to communicate the truth of God without somebody coming in to teach them communication theory. It seems a little bit ironic, doesn't it, if you think about it that way? And so one of the first things I do is I say, look, I'm going to help you with some of this theory, but ultimately, if you're not firmly embedded in, in, in the understanding of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you're really never going to be effective in ministry because this is where the true power comes from. L listen to what Paul writes. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In, in other words, human wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That just says it all right there. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Here's Peter, this fisherman, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he gets right to the point. And the Spirit cuts people right to the heart. That's the first thing. The second thing, it's all done in the name of Jesus. This good deed, which the council really should have been celebrating. They are the people of God. Not only that, they're the leaders of the people of God. They should have been celebrating this. This act that was done because Jesus is Lord. And that's why they're not celebrating. Because Jesus, of course, is a threat to their power. And to their status. And, and embedded in this speech is Peter really saying the implication is Caesar couldn't do this. You couldn't do this on the ruling council. No one could do this except Jesus, the power of Jesus Christ. The implication, rulers of Jerusalem, is that you are trusting Caesar and you're trusting yourself and you're not trusting God. That's a problem. That's a problem. Here's the third thing. Jesus is alive. You crucified him, but death couldn't hold him. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, this is done in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is alive. That's pretty powerful. Nothing to do with Peter. He's just being used by God. So here's a reasonable synopsis of what's happening to this point before we get into the last paragraph, which is the warning from the council. It's long-term, lame man is healed miraculously. People are curious, so Peter responds and preaches. The healing is a good thing, but it riles up those who are trying to preserve their status, the ruling council. And they ask a shutdown question of Peter, but Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds with truth and facts and instead shuts them down. And in the end, verse 12, Peter rests his case in a higher authority than the council a higher authority than the chief priest, a higher authority than even Caesar. He rests his case in Jesus. This is a complete gospel sermon that he presents to the council. 
And what he does is what we talked about in the big ideas. He listens to God and he bears witness to his son. So now we have the last 10 verses. This is the warning that the council gives to Peter and John. Now they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. It's a very important part there. They were astonished because of the perception that they were uneducated and common. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So it's funny, they're putting it together, they're connecting the dots, but their conclusion is way off because they want to preserve themselves. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they asked the shutdown question, but who gets shut down? Isn't that interesting? But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, so they said, uh, Peter and John, we need to talk about you behind your back, so go somewhere else right now, okay? Um, and they conferred with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They can't even bring themselves to say the name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to listen to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Luke adds that at the end to help us understand just how miraculous this, uh, this, this sign was, this healing was. Verse 13 is just filled with power and irony. Uh, the word in there for uneducated common men is the Greek word idiotos. You get one guess to understand what English word we get from that, okay? So they're perceiving that there are idiotas standing in front of them, and, and understand they're the equivalent of the people that have all the PhDs, and they've done postdoctorate fellowships, and they've written books and, and been published. So they are absolutely astounded at what's going on. They're, they're saying to themselves, how did this happen? How did the idiotas wrestle away the power and the status of Jerusalem from us? How did that happen? Now, you think back to the gospel, and you think back to the calling of the disciples, of which Peter and John were a part of that. Has it ever struck you as odd that Jesus would walk by and go, hey, come with me? And they're like, okay, and they drop their nets and they go. That seems a little bit odd, right? Okay, well, the reason is because they literally did have this Hebrew school for all the, all the males, and they would go through, and they would, they would first memorize the Pentateuch. And by the way, they were doing this in Hebrew, not English, so it was extra hard, okay? They would memorize the first five books of the Bible, and, and then they'd kind of have a cutoff, maybe when they were about seven years old. And, and they would actually, they, maybe somebody didn't make, the, and they'd send some of the kids home. You didn't do it well enough. You're going to have to go into your father's business. You're going to have to become a fisherman. 
And then they'd do the prophets or the, or the history books, and then they'd have another one around 10 years old, and then they'd cut some more out, then they'd do the, the prophets. And by the time the, uh, the boys, if they've made it through this far, they're 13, 14 years old, they had the entire Old Testament memorized, okay? They, didn't have it, they weren't distracted by the internet or anything or Netflix at that time. They, they, this is what they did. And, and, and then they would actually go in, they would go into like postgraduate work, uh, in their teen years, and then they would start interviewing with various rabbis to become a part of their yoke, a, a part of the rabbi's yoke. And that was the dream of every young Hebrew boy, was to become a part of a rabbi's yoke. And there were no second chances at all. And so now Jesus comes by, and he's this new rabbi, and he's not looking for people who are educated, but he's looking for people who will be filled with the Holy Spirit and understand the resurrection of Christ, and he goes by these guys, and he says, here's your second chance, which you never thought you'd get. You can be part of my yoke. And so they go. This was a dream of theirs. And really, if you think about it, it's, it's like a picture of the gospel. Our sin has totally washed us up. They were washed up in the eyes of the Hebrew scholars. Our sin has totally washed us up in the eyes of a holy God. But Jesus comes along and says, it's all good. You get a second chance. And not only that, you get a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth. You get seven times 70 chances. Because you cannot out my grace. You and I should respond to this offer of salvation so readily. We should also think about the fact that they knew, that the council knew that they had been with Jesus. Have we been with Jesus? And I'm not talking about impressing other people because you've been with Jesus. I'm talking about, have we believed in Jesus? Have we embraced the resurrection? Are we filled with the Spirit so that the grace that we've received is showing up in our relationships with our friends and our family and our spouses and our children and our relationships at work and our relationships on the freeway? Wow, you're pushing it now, Frank. I'll tell you right now. That's... But, we say we believe. Do we? Preaching to myself again here, but y'all are here, so might as well be to you too. Do we believe? Leslie Newbigin, who's written many books, uh, he's a theologian and, and a cultural philosopher. He's very helpful in, in analyzing the church. And he says, the church that truly prevails is not a church that has lots of programs, but rather a church whose people and community actually live out the gospel, programs or not. And lots of churches get stuck in that, in that sort of that maze of, pro if we just have more programs, it'll look like we're really doing something. That may or may not be true. You can have lots of programs and still not be doing anything. Newbigin says the true measure of a church that's going to make a difference in their community it's going to make a difference for Jesus is the church that actually just lives out the gospel, whether there's programs or not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know, 80 years ago, in Cost of Discipleship, he writes this. People coming to church, this is a long time ago and he's saying this, and it's more true now, I think. He's saying people come to church, and they shouldn't be coming to church for what the church can do for them, but rather for what Jesus has for you to be. That's why people should be coming to church. This is why Redemption Church is serious about this idea that all of life is all for Jesus. 
that he is Lord over everything. And that we don't segment our faith, but we integrate it into everything we do. And verses 14 through 16, I think, are, are really funny because these are the verses where we understand that the council knew what was right, but they simply could not let go and believe. Verse 16, and we cannot deny it. But rather than surrendering to the love and grace of God, they clamped down even tighter on their perceived power and warned Peter and John not to do this anymore. We talked last week about the three responses to cognitive dissonance. When you have a narrative or a belief in life and you're challenged with new information that is clearly true, you can either deny it and run, you can uh, admit the new truth but then delegitimize it and marginalize it, or you can change your narrative. And they're doing one and two. They're denying it, that they're, they know it's true, but they're delegitimizing it and minimizing it. So that's what they're doing. So in response to their warning, they give Peter and John this warning. Peter says, we're going to listen to you and not to God? Are you kidding me? That's my paraphrase. We cannot but talk about what we have seen and heard. And there's such beautiful irony here. Um, Mark Chapter 8, I love this passage. When we went through Mark, I wanted to spend like four weeks just on these um, eight verses. Remember Peter and Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the ruling council, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. No metaphor, no parable. He said, this is what's going to happen. And Peter took him aside. That, that verb there, took him aside, literally was he violently and physically grabbed him and pulled him away. Like in, in, in desperation. Jesus, you're saying all the wrong things. We, we don't want to do this here. You're saying all the wrong things. He pulled him aside to rebuke Jesus. And he rebuked him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's why you're behaving the way you are. That was Peter. And then Peter says this. I'm sorry. Then Jesus says this in Mark chapter 8 as he, as he wraps up this chapter. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a man profit to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here's the irony of these two little sections of scripture in Mark chapter 8. Peter is living, verses 31 through 33. And now, in, chapter, in Acts chapter 4, he is living verses 34 through 38. You see that? He wasn't living it then, but he's living verses 34 through 38 now. The resurrection changes lives. The gospel changes lives. And what Peter does in front of the council took great courage, but he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's courageous is that he's claiming to know God's will better than the high priest and the council. That's no small claim. So, so what? Number one, let's just talk about this idea of the approval of man or the approval of God. Verse 9 of chapter 4 of Acts says, they did something good. Why are we being questioned for something good? 
okay? Um, Listen to what Peter writes later on, probably around 60 AD, so, I don't know, 15 years later. Listen to what he writes in chapter 3 of his first letter, verses 13 through 16. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That makes sense, right? That's normal. That's common sense. Who would harm you if you're, if you're going to do good? Problem is, we don't live in a normal world. And so he says, he has to teach this. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Here's what he's saying. You're going to suffer for doing good. You're going to be persecuted for doing what's right. This is the guy who was following man rather than Jesus at first. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So even as you are oppressed and persecuted for doing what's right, put it back on them and let them be ashamed. In a normal world, people aren't persecuted for doing what's good, but we don't live in a normal world. And that's why we really do need the Holy Spirit. We can't do this under our own power. It's not an option. It's the idea of living life naturally, supernaturally. Once you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it only becomes natural that we would live a supernatural life because it's by His power and not ours. And really, it's the fulfillment of what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12. Let me read that for you. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Don't fear those who can put you to physical death. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about God. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but, uh, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you shall defend yourself or what you shall say. How did Jesus know that they were going to be brought before the rulers? How did he know that? He can see the future. <laughs> or he's God, or both. Instead, you... Uh, Don't be afraid about what you're going to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Man, we are so determined to rely on ourselves. And again, I'm preaching to myself. I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to take care of this myself. (laughs) Okay. And that leads perfectly into number two. Go back to the idiotas. Common, uneducated, illiterate. Here you go. God does whatever he wants, regardless of what we might think are the barriers and roadblocks. God does whatever he wants, regardless of what we might think are barriers and roadblocks. And here's the key. We, we, we use this, the text uses the word idiotas. It's not that they were stupid. You have to understand that. 
It's not that they were stupid. But they were not specifically trained by the rabbis. That's the problem. So the rabbis are sitting there going, you weren't trained properly. You weren't trained according to our system. The truth is, in the gospel, we're all ministers, every single one of us. We're all servants. We are all lovers. We are all ambassadors of God's grace. The idea that they are idiotas is not anti-intellectual, and it's not anti-training. They did, after all, walk with Jesus for three years. So they were trained, and they were taught. But for them, Ricardo Stewart at Tempe uses this term. I love this term. For the, for the ruling council, Peter and John represented categorical confusion. They don't have a place to put them. They don't understand how this is happening. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to, through the right channels. They didn't go through the ivory towers. They didn't rub elbows with the right people. They didn't do it their way. They didn't do it the way they were supposed to do. This is like a big old beach ball just lobbed up here for me. One of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, who planted a church when he was 40, and just an amazing story of what that's East Valley Bible Church, which is now our Gilbert congregation, taught for years Bible studies in the marketplace, and still does, by the way, on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Um, Here's a guy who graduated with a 2.1 grade point average from St. Ambrose College in Davenport, Iowa, and his degree was in sociology. He never went to seminary, never went to Jesus school. He didn't even know Jesus until he was 30 years old. How does that happen? Do you understand? And what's funny is I remember when his church in four years hit 5,000 people. East Valley Bible Church. And I remember people walking around going, categorical confusion. (laughs) That guy guy has a sociology degree in Iowa. I mean, what is that? (laughs) He didn't go, how is this happening? You believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the resurrection? That's what happens, categorical confusion. Now, I know some of you right now are very, very discerning, and you're going, okay, what, what's wrong with you then, Frank? You went to seminary. <laughs> it's good. It's good that you intuited that, okay? Here's what's wrong with me. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Tom has this incredible discipline that I've always left, lusted after. He reads all the hard stuff uh, because he's disciplined. I, on the other hand, am not disciplined. I have to pay somebody a lot of money to hold me accountable for what I'm supposed to read. That's what seminary is. (laughs) So I recognize that I don't have the discipline, but the Spirit can work through seminary as well. But I want you to see the power there, the power. So rather than disparage Peter and John, why aren't they praising God? And that leads to number three. Daryl Bach again, the gladiator scholar. He says that chapter four shows the blindness of unbelief. The blindness of unbelief. No one denies that what Jesus did happened. They can't even deny that he's alive. But rather now, what are they doing? They're debating about where the power comes from. 
<laughs> that's that's a deflection and distraction. That's all they're trying to do. All right, well, let's, let's talk about where the power is coming from then. That, that'll, that'll take up some time. We don't have to acknowledge the truth of this. We can just talk about where the power is coming from. In other words, there's always something. When somebody is desperate to not believe, there's always something. I, I love engaging non-believers and having them ask questions and all that, and I can't answer all of them. But, but I love engaging them. But what, what's interesting is sometimes you get to a point where you begin to recognize that they're only asking another question because that's all they're ever going to do. They're really not looking for you to answer them. They're just asking questions to keep distracting and deflecting. In, in John chapter 10, Jesus is encountering these professional religious people. And, and eventually at one point, they're saying... He's saying, look, look at all the signs and stuff I've done and you still don't believe. Essentially what he ends up saying to them is, you will not believe because you will not believe. If you've decided you're not going to believe, you're going to be blind to any evidence. So there's no point in even presenting any evidence to you. You're just not going to believe. You go back to the very beginning of this message. I said, you know, if it's the first time reading Acts, you're going, how could anybody not believe this? How could there be opposition if anyone should see this, Peter's saying this, you're the builders. He said this in his sermon. You're the builders and you rejected the cornerstone. If anybody should be able to see this, it's these religious types. And they admit in verse 16, a notable sign has taken place by this man. And they know about the resurrection. It's blind unbelief. You will not believe because you will not believe. Daryl Bach writes this. This is really interesting. When unbelief denies what is obvious before you, it turns into persecution. And I think it's ironic because very often Christians are accused of what? Blind faith. Blind faith. There's also such a thing as blind unbelief. Here is the truth. God loves you, and I know. Cliche, but it's true. Maybe a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And he proves it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Let's pray together. The band's going to come and lead us in our last song. Lord God, we thank you for this great gift of salvation. And we thank you for the filling of your Holy Spirit, the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your son is alive, that he's been raised from the dead. And we thank you for the power that that gives us, that it does not reside in us, and that we do not do it for our glory, but we do it for your glory. Thank you for that. And we pray that you would be the one who gains the glory from all of this. Thank you for Redemption Church and what you're doing here in this community. I pray that you would continue to Give us grace so that we might be able to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.